You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining us, as always, from MMAJunkie.com. In USA Today, it's Ben Folks. Ben, you're fresh back from uh, Chicago, where you took in uh, UFC on Fox 10 this this past weekend. Uh, I heard it was cold out there. It was cold. And, you know, windy. I don't know if you knew that about Chicago. Really? No, yeah. that's... That's the first I've heard of this. You know, I almost, I didn't think I was going to make it back, to tell you the truth, because... Because of the hot dogs? Because, uh, sun, or Saturday, no, Sunday morning, right? I come out of my hotel at like 5.45 a.m. to catch a taxi to, to the airport, and it has apparently been snowing all night, just snow everywhere, and I finally hail a taxi. He, like, skids to a stop almost on the sidewalk. I get in there, uh, and he proceeds to tell me, how God has saved him from two accidents already that morning. Oh, Jesus. Uh, which I laughed nervously. Uh, <laughs> then he added, in completely completely serious tone, I drive terribly. Oh, no. And that was this pretty much... a cab driver. That was pretty much the last thing we said to each other. Uh, then, you know, we get on the freeway to drink the 40-minute drive to O'Hare, uh, and Jesus Christ, man. Like, there were at least half a dozen times where I was like, okay, this is it. This is the time we get in the accident because he's just all he's driving like there's not snow, uh, like all over the place. You can't even see the lines on the road or just sliding everywhere. He's not in the kind of car that's really equipped for that. Did not seem like he had a ton of experience with winter driving. Uh, and like we came within centimeters of several accidents. Wow. Yeah. So, and his job is essentially for him to be a professional driver. Like, yeah. That's what he does in the, you know, a, a a climate known to get a little wintry at times. Yeah, it it was just absolutely ridiculous. And it was one thing, like, I had mixed feelings when we finally made it at the airport. For one thing, I was amazed that we didn't get an accident. Because what happens if you get an accident in a cab, like, on the freeway on the way to the airport? Like, I well, guess you I, miss your plane, for yeah, starters. And That's I, the I least guess, of your Am I obliged worries. to stick around and see how things turn out? Or, I don't, I, you know, I don't even know. And so then when I finally get there and I'm just amazed and stressed out and eager to get out of that cab, but then I watch that guy just go speeding off into the night. And for all I know, he's still out there. So shit, Chicago, look out, man. You know, that's a terrifying story because cab drivers generally are terrible drivers. This is the one thing that I learned from living in New York that I would rather either walk or take public transportation and then spend five minutes in a, in a, in a public taxi cab. Uh, so the fact that you had one that was uh, a bad enough driver that you feel the need to comment on it to me is terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. He's, I drive terribly. That's what he said to me. Luckily though, through all things are, are possible through Christ. He delivered you safely to the airport <laughs> and now you're here to record Episode 88 of the Co-Main Event Podcast. Did Right before you got out of the cab, did you turn around and it turned out it was Benson Henderson? Because that would have been a, a, a good anecdote. I think I would have mentioned that at the top. Don't you? I don't know. Maybe you were building suspense for, yeah. the, for the end of the story. That could be. Anyway, three rounds as usual this week for the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, Benson Henderson dreams of a world where there are no winners and no losers. He just wants to fight everyone in the lightweight division to an exact tie. It's admirable when you think about it. I mean, we've finally achieved perfect balance in the universe. No reason to even go on having fights. 
And in round number two, 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 two championship fights in one this weekend at UFC 169. And in round number three, Alistair Overeem and Frank Mir both face must-win stakes on Saturday night. Who will get cut? Who will look unbelievably huge? And is it possible to get a contact high just from being around this much TRT? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me? Just saying stuff and tips for the well-rounded fight fan I understand we're doing this week. But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Rob L. He writes, what do you guys make of Alex Caceres? He looked excellent against Sergio Pettis, just as he looked excellent in most of his fights since dropping down a weight class post-tough. Could slash should he be a fighter the powers that be in the UFC try to start promoting instead of feeding to other prospects? He has the look, the style, the wins, and the gimmick, not to mention the fleeting recognition from his time on the show, to be someone that could help garner viewers. Seeing as how his only loss at bantamweight was a split decision where he was docked two points for groin strikes one could argue he's about as close to undefeated in his last eight fights as you can get for most fighters we'd be talking about title shots with a run like that yet he can't seem to get off the undercard just saying yo yeah those are good points and i think he made some of those points himself that felt like maybe the ufc was not really expecting him to win this fight i I think this might have been the the breakout one for him because obviously the ufc seemed like uh, they're into sergio pettis right they you know, even though it looks like he's just a, a kid in a pretty good Anthony Pettis Halloween costume. Uh, oh wow! How long have you been saving that one? Oh, I think oh, I've used that. Did you come up with that one uh, on the ride to well, the airport? I used that one on Twitter before. That's, that's good stuff. Uh, no, come on! You look at him and you're just like, if he were showing up to like a party as dressed as Anthony Pettis, you'd be like, that's solid. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's solid. Uh, and then Caceres goes out there and looks at times. You know, he eats a couple head kicks, uh, takes a couple shots that might do some other people in. Stays in there, keeps keeps scrapping, uh, and once he sees the opportunity, boom, locks on that choke, uh, and then ends up, you know, singing us a little Paul Simon in the post fight press conference. Kind of weird. Yeah, um, I I agree with you, and I agree with uh, Rob. I think Alex Caceres has looked super good uh, since going down to bantamweight. Uh, the only thing that I would point out, maybe uh, to his detriment, maybe the things that are keeping him from being a guy that the UFC wants to boost to the next level, are that uh, well, the the split decision that he lost, uh, I believe, to Edwin Figueroa uh, on account of the groin strikes, and then of course his win over Kyung Ho Kang was overturned uh, last year because uh, he, I believe, he tested positive for. Marijuana on account of the Mary Jane. Huerta. Yeah. Uh, but he says that uh, he's he's completely off that now. Doesn't even doesn't sure. even mess with it months out. And that's fine. I mean, the, with the hairstyle, I'm not necessarily sure I believe him. But, uh, <laughs> y- you know, when he was making that case, I was actually like I felt like I was kind of trying to like almost argue in favor of him smoking some weed. Like, come on. What would a little hurt you? <laughs> come on, man. I don't. Well, I'm just saying, like, he's made a couple of mistakes. Right. And because he also had a bit of an up-and-down history, you know, at featherweight before he even went down to bantamweight, you can understand, I guess, maybe why they're slow-playing him a little bit. Uh, and clearly, yeah, Sergio Pettis, uh, mostly, I think, because of his pedigree, but also because of the success that he had in the on the independent circuit, came into the UFC with a ton of hype and I think was forecasted as a guy who could potentially be a future contender at bantamweight, if not a guy that you were thinking about one day might be the champion. However, you know, he does kind of go out there and, and you know, I'm not going to say get tooled, but lost to Alex Caceres. And in the process, I thought, look, just looking like a flyweight out there, like these two guys did not uh, look like they were in the same weight class. And I know that he comes from the Duke Rufus camp in, in uh, uh, Milwaukee where they don't 
uh, technically or the, you know, broadly speaking, they don't like to cut a lot of weight up there. I've heard that they're kind of a, against the big weight cut. Uh, but at the same time, you, he's only five, six and you see him go out there and, and get d- kind of dwarfed by a guy like Alex Caceres. You might want to think about maybe a different weight class for that guy. Yeah, but I don't feel like that's what decided that fight. I mean, I don't think he was out there getting ragdolled by Alex Caceres or getting, getting shoved around the cage. I mean, every once in a while you see a fight where that definitely, you know, it's the, the sign that a guy needs to change weight classes. I don't know if that was necessarily what this was. I think that what you saw from Sergio Pettis there more was uh, youth and inexperience a little bit. You know, doing well, make a mistake, uh, and against a guy who can really make you pay for it. You know, that seemed like one of those situations, too, where you kind of screw up and you think, okay, okay, I'm going to be fine. I, that was dumb, but I'm not, I'm not in trouble. And then, oh, shit, I am. Uh, and that's all it took, you know. So I, I don't know. I think it'll be kind of a learning experience for him. But, yeah, as far as Alex Caceres goes, yeah, let's – Let's give that guy something bigger. And, I mean, a ton of good bantamweight fights on that card. So it seems like that division is really finally getting to where you can do some stuff with it. He ought to be one of the guys who gets a chance to move up a little bit. Yeah, and I think he will now that he's beaten Sergio Pettis. I mean, you just look at the guys that he's beaten at bantamweight. Sergio Pettis, uh, in terms of name name recognition, even though this was only his second fight in the UFC, is probably the the most well known guy that he's that he's beaten. Uh, maybe I guess with the exception of Demacio Page back in his first bantamweight fight, but it's not like we're running around touting Demacio Page as anybody special. So you would think I that, that was your uh, guy, Demacio uh, Page. You know that's your guy. Uh, <laughs> you'd think that uh, that he would get a bump up in competition now that that he. He's beaten a guy that uh, that I think was getting a litmus test in this fight to kind of see if he if he had the goods and and Alex Caceres came out on top so uh, you'd think he would get a, a bump up in competition. Second piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Danny Moreno. He says, "Please talk about how good Stipe Miocic looked in Stipe. in his decision win over Gonzaga this past Saturday. You already have Rogan and Goldberg saying Stipe and Kane are the two most athletic fighters in the division. How do you guys think a fight between him and the champ plays out? Uh, this is a great excuse for you guys to shout Stipe multiple Stipe. times in your show." Yeah, you know, Stipe Miocic did look pretty good against uh, Gabriel Gonzaga that looked like he had made the mistake of not training for rounds two or rounds three in this fight. Uh, I was initially a little bit worried about Stipe because uh, during the first round, he looked like he was opting for that strategy where you just don't give a shit if the other guy punches you in the face. Yes, he did, didn't uh, he? Which I, I was kind of nervous about yeah, because well, that seems like a really good way to lose a fight to Gabriel Gonzaga. Exactly. But, as it turned out, maybe Stipe knew something we didn't. Maybe he knew if he let uh, Gonzaga uncork a half dozen of those overhand rights up right to his face that uh, that Gonzaga would would show up on E on empty in the in the second round, and uh, then he would have pretty much have smooth sail on the rest of the way. Yeah, I don't really believe that that was his plan to go out there and get punched in the head until Gonzaga tired and broke his hand. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. Hey, and let's mention first the post-fight tweet from Gabriel yes. Gonzaga, possibly the greatest sweet, uh, greatest tweet ever sent. What did it say? Lost, broke hand. Yeah, lost, broke no hand. Punctuation. No punctuation. Just lost, broke hand. Subsequently, he added some pictures and ex- like photos of his X-rays and stuff like that. But yeah, just the tweet: lost, broke hand. Uh, pretty awesome. But that was one where I was actually surprised. I thought that. Uh, Stipe would run away with this one a little more because he's he is uh, one of the more athletic, well-rounded, and really quicker heavyweights. I thought, especially just like footwork-wise, he'd be dancing all over Gonzaga. And Gonzaga took the the strategy, it seemed, of, all right, we're going to let this guy come in and then we're going to counter him. And he was landing some pretty good counter right hands there. Uh, you know, Stipe showed that his his chin is, is doing all right, so, you know, he took him. 
Uh, and then, yeah, Gonzaga just faded really, really fast there in the second and third round to the point where he was barely doing anything in the third. I uh, kind of wonder what was going on with him there because I don't know if a broken hand explains that. I mean, I know you lost broke hand, but still, you know, where where was the, the cardio at? Uh, but I don't know. I mean, that one, it's really hard for me to tell what to make of Stipe after that because I feel like Gonzaga lost that fight as much as Stipe won it. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Stipe Miocic does have a pretty good and well-rounded athletic pedigree even before becoming an MMA fighter. You know, he's, a, uh, I believe, a Golden Gloves champion boxer and uh, had some college wrestling experience, right. I think, also, and, and uh, even played a little bit of baseball, yeah. I think. Uh, so he is, a, you know, legitimately a good athlete and, and a guy who certainly is able to look incredibly athletic in, in a heavyweight division where... Uh, where that can take you a long way. Right now he's he's five and one at heavyweight in the UFC, uh, which is kind of like being like fifteen and two if you are a, like a lightweight or a, <laughs> or a welterweight. You know, uh, at the same time, uh, I'm not necessarily clamoring to see him fight a guy like Junior Dos Santos or Cain Cain Velasquez. I feel like he would uh, probably not win. Yeah, and that's part of the question that was asked. How do we think he would do against the champ? I think he would probably do poorly. Yeah, I think so too. Well, you know, I think you need to see him. Uh, against a little tougher competition but that is a good thing about heavyweight is you know you could win one big fight and uh depending on how things shake out that that could be all it takes for you to, right. to get into it he's got a, he's got a couple of good wins you know gabriel gonzaga's no no dummy and uh, uh roy nelson is a pretty good win at heavyweight and so i don't want to make it seem like i don't think stipe miocic has a future i think that he's a, a really good prospect i just uh i do want to see some more from him and uh you know, I'm not sold on him as as like a, a top two or three heavyweight at this point, regardless of what kind of ridiculous assertions we're making about his athleticism on the right. broadcast. Well, come on. Wouldn't it be awesome if he became UFC heavyweight champion and then we could read a bunch of articles about how maybe baseball is the best base for MMA after <laughs> it's not actually. And hey, yeah, let's say let's let's throw it out there. Stipe Miocic, from everything that I can tell, seems like a pretty good dude. Like, yeah. uh, I believe he's from what Cleveland. Yeah. And uh, he seems to have a. Uh, kind of a, uh, 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 I don't want to say happy-go-lucky, but kind of like an easygoing attitude about it. He's so seen- much so that he's kind of a terrible interview, though. Really? You ever interviewed him? No, I have not. I mean, he is, like, really happy-go-lucky to the point where, like, you'll ask him a question, and he'll just be like, yeah, man, yeah, no, it's good. And <laughs> oh, just, okay, yeah, that doesn't help One you. of those, yeah, you're just waiting. Uh, you could see it some of the post-fight press conference where he's just like, come on, let's... uh." How about, like, I'll ask a question and you just kind of go. Like, like that. that's the kind of thing I'm looking for. Like, we talked to, to Tyron Woodley backstage. Now, there's a dude who's a good interview. You ask a question, and you can sit back for the next four minutes. Because he's going to answer in, like, a bunch of complete sentences. The next question this week comes from Kent Carter. He writes, I think the UFC is squandering their time on Big Fox. Do you guys think it's squandering its time on Big Fox? Discuss. I like how succinct this question is. I, I do too, and like I think it's a pretty good question. You know, the uh, uh, the the ratings came in for for this Fox show, and I don't think that they were stellar. Uh, though we saw a lot of uh, report reportage out there about how the, how good they scored in their uh, in their key demos. Their demos. You can always tell when the ratings aren't aren't yeah. that great because all the stories are going to be about the key demos. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Um, yeah. No, I heard that uh, with brown-haired men aged 18 to 26 and a half, they killed it. Yeah, just stomped it. Yeah. Just 
just murdered it. Uh, and you know what? I've, I've been thinking about this since we read this question and, or since we, ch- we chose this question for the, for the show today. Uh, in a, in a, I, I agree with it because I feel like as a fan, I want the UFC's shows on Fox to be a little bit bigger of a deal. I mean, there, there's what? There's only four of them a year, I think. They're on, uh, network television. Uh, it should feel like an event to me. And right now, uh, the shows are good, but they're not, you know, over the top, outstandingly awesome. And yeah. It, it, it's, but it, at the same time, it's a little bit of a weird position for the UFC because if your number one moneymaker is still pay per view, obviously you want to, uh, to keep your, your top shows, uh, for your numbered events that you're going to try to sell to people for 55 bucks on pay per view. So you don't want to necessarily jettison your big time draws for Fox, but at the same time, I feel like the people who tune in and, and you might, you know, do better ratings and have a, uh, an easier time sucking people in to buy the, the pay-per-views. If, if you try to stack those, those Fox network cards a little bit, a little bit more. Yeah. I guess like, could you, do you feel like you could, uh, accurately articulate the difference between what makes this, what makes something a UFC on Fox card versus a Fox sports one card? Like, I don't know that I could really explain to you what makes it one caliber as opposed to another. They seem pretty similar to me. Like the same kind of like fight night brand thing where, okay, the the main event is either going to be a title fight in a division that we don't think anybody cares about yet or like a number one contender or like eliminator kind of fight. Like that's pretty much the most that you can hope for on either of those right now. So yeah, what makes this uh, a Fox card and as, as opposed to one of the Fox Sports ones? I don't know. It just it feels like kind of random at this point. Yeah, and Dana White is always talking about how you know it was awesome when boxing was on network TV when he was a kid, uh, and he used to really love to, to tune into that. And I feel like the UFC has that kind of chance with this with this deal being on Fox network TV, but right now it just doesn't feel like. Uh, a huge must-see TV event, which I think, you know, the company should try a little harder to do that uh, with these Fox shows. At the same time, I wonder how much of it is a symptom of them doing so many different fight cards now. Uh, clearly, when you do uh, as many shows as the UFC does now, it spreads your roster out. Uh, it kind of, you know, has the, the, the tendency to deplete individual cards because, you know, since you're doing four shows in the next month, you have to kind of space out the the marketable fights. Uh, so, you know, you end up uh, with, with stuff like this, this most recent Fox card, which, you know, Benson Henderson versus Josh Thompson, I think is a pretty good fight. And one we should say uh, that they had to make because of a bunch of injuries that they had at lightweight, you know, Stipe Miocic versus Gabriel Gonzaga uh, is, is a, a pretty good heavyweight contender fight. But then, you know, you got Donald Cerrone fighting a, a guy in Adrio, Adrio, Adriano Martins nailed it. Uh, <laughs> who is clearly super talented, but I don't think is a guy that anyone's ever heard of before. And, uh, you know, the, your other televised car fight on this card, Jeremy Stevens against uh, Darren Elkins, uh, not one that's necessarily going to draw a ton of eyeballs. Yeah. And it's just like, I feel like you, you, with the Fox card, the big appeal, right, is that you can get that casual network TV audience, the people who don't usually watch this stuff. You can kind of pull those people in. Like, you know, when I'm taking the airport shuttle, uh, to go to Chicago, uh, and, you know, the, the airport shuttle driver and I, we know each other at this point, uh, and he always wants to know where I'm going and, and who's fighting that. We, I mean, he seems like he's the kind of guy who, when if I tell him, okay, no, this one's on Fox, you won't have to pay for this one or go down to the press box and, and watch it with a bunch of frat bros, then he kind of gets interested and he wants to know, okay, well, what's the thing? What's, what's this one about? And it's like, 
the point where you have to go, oh, well, it's one guy who was a former UFC champ and another guy who was a former Strike Force champ. And if one of them wins, he'll get a title shot. And the other one wins, probably nothing really significant will happen. Like, at that point, uh, you know, you, you don't really have the same hook. I mean, again, like, I understand why the UFC wants to save the stuff that is exciting enough that people will pay for for pay per view. That's still its business. But it does feel like these Fox cards should be a little something extra to to get those kinds of people who are thinking like, uh, you know, I heard about this stuff. I'll watch it some to get them from that point to the, okay, this is awesome. I'm going to pay for it next time. The last piece of listener mail this week comes from Ras Jarborg. He writes, I have no real question. So not so different from the rest of your listener mail then, but I would just ask ooh, you to ooh. read and then discuss the immortal words of one Nathan Donald Diaz after UFC fight night 36. In parentheses, punctuation, all mine. Then uh, <laughs> he proceeds to quote the awesome thing that uh, that uh, that Nate Diaz posted on the internet after Fight Night 36. Nate Diaz writes, last night's fight was whack. First of all, these guys are here to cause confusion. I'm here to put these ass whoopings down to their maximum effect. And you've got these guys out here having a wrestling match. They're smiling and shaking hands and having a good old time. Instead of fighting for real, they're play fighting. And this shit's putting me to sleep. That's not what I signed up for. Nobody wants to watch that shit. And it's definitely causing confusion to the fans and the fighters. I don't know who's judging these fights. They should have both lost the fight. Then you've got the other motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> playing his Hollywood role on the sidelines in his silly-ass suits, getting paid to sit there and state his bullshit opinion like anyone gives a fuck. <laughs> You've been here like two years and pulled out of half your fight, so I don't know why you think you're calling the shots. Uh, he is the champion. Okay, anyway. Uh, how about you win another fight or two, and then maybe you can fight me, motherfucker. And then, P.S., I thought Thompson's bitch ass won the wrestling match. <laughs> Ah, yes, it's so great. It's the postscript that gets you, yeah, right? Well, After the long rant about how shitty the fight was. The things that get me also, for one thing, I love how he starts off by calling the fights whack. Like, Nate Diaz just stuck in, like, the mid-90s to a certain point. But then, like, the point where... The, here, I can see the subtle differences why this is Nate Diaz and not Nick Diaz when he talks about how he's here to put ass whippings down to their maximum effect. Yeah, no, I was going to say, when I write the Nate Diaz... Uh, when I ghostwrite the Nate Diaz autobiography, I'm hoping I can talk him into the title being put these ass whippings down to their maximum effect. Yes! That is awesome. Uh, I also love how he's just decided to act like in a ch kind of Chael Sonnen-esque fashion. Like Anthony Pettis needs to win a couple more fights in order to earn the right to fight him. Right. Anthony Pettis is the champion we should throw out there for those of you listening <laughs> at home that maybe found this podcast while you were looking for a home and gardens podcast or something. Right. I don't know. Well, and I should mention, uh, this reminds me that I talked to Brian Stan a little bit backstage and, and people were asking him about, uh, how he thought Anthony Pettis was doing on the broadcast. And, uh, we're talking about how, you know, Anthony Pettis shows up in his silly ass suits, as Nate Diaz says, and kind of made Stan, uh, question his own wardrobe choices a little bit. And, and I mentioned how you found Anthony Pettis to be an exceptionally well groomed man. He might be the best dressed fighter in the UFC. Uh, Stan says that it's because no matter what you talk about, whether it's, you know, haircuts, personal grooming, suits, watches, jewelry, cars, everything you talk about, Anthony Pettis has got a guy for that. If you mention like how you're, you know, you'll like his watch or something, oh, he's got a guy and he'll give you the guy's card. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned a suit, he's got a guy for that. So it seems like it's no accident. He didn't just, you know, wander into a men's warehouse and, and pick something off the rack. Seems like Anthony Pettis 
perhaps might be blowing through his UFC money at a at a Conor McGregor esque, uh, Donald Cerrone esque pace. I was going to say having a guy for everything sounds awesome, but it also sounds expensive. I'm just saying, and I hope we don't get into a Donald Cerrone type situation with uh, with my guy Anthony Pettis, well, best dressed man in the UFC. At least it'll make him fight more often. That would be good, yeah, right? Six, what, six to ten times a year is what we're looking at with, with Donald this year, right? I mean, what do you have a guy for? Do you even have a guy for anything? No, I have zero guys. Yeah. I, just, I have a guy who comes over once a week and records a podcast in my house. <laughs> Usually leaves his empty coffee cup on the table. That's the only guy I've got. That, that is bullshit, man. It's a bullshit guy. You don't have to tell me that. I know he is. Uh, well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. Uh, if you have a question, comment, or concern to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to get in touch with us. You can go to our website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, clearly Benson Henderson is an elite level lightweight. Uh, he's one of the most talented guys in the division, and he's a former champion. But at this point, his penchant for winning decisions that I think most people thought ought to have gone to the other guy has reached like a freaky, unsettling uh, level. His fight against Josh Thompson was close, but it was also one that I thought was pretty clear cut uh, for for Thompson. Uh, I guess my opening question for you is, how does Benson Henderson keep doing this, and what are these judges seeing that most other people aren't? Well, I'm I'm curious, actually, that you thought it was pretty clear-cut for Thompson. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I thought that he at least won three rounds. Uh, I, I thought it was a, a, a close fight, but uh, um, I thought that he controlled most of the action, you know, and... and Maybe our discussion of judging, we, we would have to talk a little bit about how more and more it's it's just becoming apparent that different judges value different stuff. Yeah. Uh, but to me, when you're when you're you've got a body triangle on a guy and you're riding his back and you're threatening with a rear naked choke for, you know, I, I think in every round except the third, um, I guess maybe in the fifth, he didn't quite take his back, although he did. He did have control of him uh, for a good portion of that round. I think uh, it just seemed to me like Josh Thompson uh, controlled the action got the better of most of the grappling exchanges. And uh, I guess the, the fight metric strike totals at the end of it were kind of bizarrely lopsided toward Ben Henderson. But as it was happening, I thought it was, it was pretty clear that Josh Thompson was, was getting the better of, of most of the significant uh, action. Well, we've talked before about how uh, this sport really kind of defies easy understanding through statistics and this fight, especially, I think, I don't know that you really want to, think too deeply about what those strike totals mean especially with any benson henderson fight actually because you know how that dude will do he'll he'll clinch you against the cage and he'll maybe kick your calf a few times you know uh but he i thought actually did some some good work with body shots on josh thompson that one i am though it's interesting to think about how we do seem to think okay if you get the guy's back 
then boom, like you're dominating. And this was one like in the first round where he spent a lot of time, you know, had the body triangle on him, uh, was really controlling him from the back and had that position for a good portion of the round. Okay. In subsequent rounds, it seemed like Benson Henderson had kind of figured out that he wasn't too worried about having Josh Thompson on his back, was never really close with a, a choke or anything, never did a whole lot of damage from there, and was able to kind of stand up pretty quickly once he realized that that was a good way to get Thompson to uh, let it go. Uh, it, I mean, Henderson actually was the only one who had a, a submission that seemed like it was close when he tried that uh, that head and arm uh, made Thompson kind of work to defend that. You know, I mean, I, I still thought, I thought it was close. I thought Thompson, uh, you know, I gave him the edge. Uh, but I also. You did, because it, I, you just spent the first three minutes of this. I was going to ask you next if you thought Ben Henderson won, because that's kind of, kind of sounds like it was close what you're saying. And, it was close enough that I, you know, I can't get too mad either way. I mean, I think that's what Benson Henderson does, is he gets in those kind of fights where, and I think Danny Boy Downs uh, actually pointed this out pretty well in our trading shots thing about how. Part of the thing that's good about his style is that he makes it really difficult to to get off on him, to, to really mount any sustained offense. But that the downside of that style is he makes it difficult for himself to mount uh, any sustained offense. But he does, he never really looks like he's worried or he's in trouble. You know, even when Thompson has his back, uh, and even when Thompson is, is kind of forcing him to defend, he does do a really good job of always looking like he's still in control, which I think does manipulate the judges a little bit. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like if he were just getting away with these really close fights, like we've talked before, you keep doing that and eventually it's going to go against you, right? It seems like we just keep waiting for that to happen and it doesn't. Like his style obviously is – is he's found something that resonates with judges. Yeah, and I think that is like the most bizarre thing about Ben Henderson at this point is that I'm not sure we've ever seen a guy – quite like this in the UFC. I mean, we've seen guys like George St. Pierre that people uh, slag on for being quote unquote boring. And he's a guy that puts together a bunch of decision wins in a row, but he's also going out there and, and dominating them, you know, yeah, no question whether he's winning those fights. Yeah. Most and, of the time. and we've seen a guy like Frankie Edgar, who was the lightweight champion just prior to Benson Henderson uh, had a style that, that, uh, made for kind of similarly close decisions. And you did when Frank Edgar was doing it, get the impression that, well, you know, eventually he's going to lose one of these. And he did to Ben Henderson. Right. Then he lost another one to Ben Henderson. Uh, it just seems like the really notable thing about Ben Henderson at this point is that he hasn't lost any of those fights. And, and, you know, when you look at his record, I think he's, he's eight and one in the UFC. But, uh, when I look at his last few fights, uh, and I'm not trying to be a smart ass about this. Like as they happened, I've scored his fights that where he's one in five in his last six fights with his only real win being his, his domination of Nate Diaz. Uh, so to me, it's just a bizarre situation where you've got this guy who's clearly super, super good and, uh, has a style that I think is hard for a lot of guys in lightweight division to match up with. But at the same time, I feel like it's a fine line between him being like, uh, in the race to be number one contender and him being maybe totally out of the UFC if he had lost like four of those decisions. <laughs> right. No. And you can make that argument that, uh, you know, I mean, at least if things had gone the way a lot of people seem to think that they should have. But I think now the public perception is it's mounted to a point where it's even hard to to be sure that we're being honest with ourselves about him, because it feels like a lot of us want like this to go against him at some point because we feel like he's getting away with something and especially that he seems like he's getting away with it and doesn't care doesn't care that you know he's squeaking by no yeah, know, he absolutely just doesn't happy. care it was 
it was uh, it, as I wrote on on Bleacher Report today. I have a, a column about Josh Thompson considering retirement. Like it seemed particularly galling to me after this one for whatever reason to see Josh Thompson at this press conference, arm in a sling. Uh, you know, thumb broken and wrapped up in gauze or, or in a cast, whatever he had on, uh, like choking back tears and struggling to find the words to like kind of uh, communicate to us that he's seriously considering retirement. And then right on the other side of the podium, you've got Ben Henderson over there cracking jokes and laughing about how he'll take a W any way he can get it. Smoking like, and joking. To me, it seemed kind of galling. Yet at the same time, I don't know that like this is a thing that Ben Henderson can really capitalize on. Like I'm not sure if this makes him the sort of villain that people are going to want to tune in to watch. You know what I mean? Because I think- it seems like just kind of boring more than anything else except for the fact that he seems to have this unbelievable ability to to win decisions that we thought he lost yeah i mean i don't know if it's going to make him a superstar or anything but i think he could if he wanted to crank that up just a little bit i think he's gotten to the point now where a lot of people would like to see benson henderson get beat down and that is something that you know if you gotta if you're the ufc and you gotta find some way to get people interested in the guy again uh you know, that is something that, that you could use is because I think a lot of people are kind of against him now. And I also think, though, that when we talk about public perception, I wonder how much it affected us to know that Thompson had an injured hand. I mean, it was pretty clear on the broadcast. They, they kind of pointed that out early on. And so then I think you combine that with a lot of people already maybe not being super in love with Benson Henderson's style. And then you see Thompson out there knowing that he's injured. And I, like, I think a lot of people either subconsciously or otherwise were kind of, you know, just giving him tough guy points for staying in there and sticking it out. And then when, oh, hey, he's still doing this well with an injured hand. Well, shit, man, he deserves to win. Like, I definitely think there was some of that going on. Uh, and I maybe that's one of the reasons why, like, uh, our guy Matt Erickson, who was sitting in the arena watching it, and I was sitting backstage in the media center watching it, and so, you know, you could hear the commentary. And I think that that can definitely affect your perceptions in a fight like that. He scored at 4-1 for, for Benson Henderson and took a lot of shit from people afterwards. But I can see how maybe if you didn't have that knowledge, you see that as a different fight. And maybe if you just have a different sense of, you know, what you think of Benson Henderson's style to begin with. Yeah, I mean, that's probably a good point. I don't think I'm going to disagree with that. I think that, that uh, you know, you probably wouldn't even have been able to tell that Josh Thompson had a broken thumb uh, if they had not brought it up on the on the UFC broadcast because he did uh, have what I consider to be sort of a shocking amount of success knowing that he did go out there with what otherwise could have been, you know, considered a sort of debilitating injury for at least four rounds uh, of this fight. You know, and at the same time, though, like – clearly watching the the broadcast and listening to the commentary uh it sounded like the UFC broadcast team thought that that Benson Henderson was winning the fight uh because Joe Rogan as he so often does in the final round will uh uh you know urge a guy to quote unquote go for broke because he thinks that like he's obviously losing the fight which is something that he said about Josh Thompson in the last round of this fight where when I was watching it I was like are you crazy like I think he's winning this like I don't think he needs to go for broke so like I don't know maybe not knowing he had a broken hand could tip you one way but also listening to the UFC broadcast team kind of one-sided for for Ben Henderson might you know, tip you the the in an, in another way. Well, that's another point that I was going to make is that I think if you look at what Thompson actually did in the fight, I don't know that you see him really going after it in a way that Benson Henderson isn't. 
Like, I think it just plays into people's existing perception about Benson Henderson that they don't necessarily have about Josh Thompson. So it didn't seem like he had a terrible sense of urgency about the fight either. It seemed like he was also just trying to, you know, win one round at a time and, and hope that in the end that added up in his favor. Like, I, I don't think that you can look at that and say, well, one guy was really going after it and the other guy was playing it safe. I mean, it seemed like they were both kind of trying to play the same game there and, Surprise, Benson Henderson is a little better at that game, at least in the eyes of most of the judges. Yeah, but that also is a complete matter of perception, though, because we know now that he went out and did that with a broken thumb. And, like, kind of unfair, I think, to look at a guy and be like, well, this guy didn't go out there with very much urgency when the guy's out there with one opposable thumb. And he's uh, basically beating a dude who was the former UFC lightweight champion for almost two years. And I saw Dana White came out after this. And I don't know if at the time he knew Josh Thompson had a broken thumb or not. But he told, uh, you know, the Las Vegas Fox affiliate that he that just what you said, he didn't feel like either guy was going out there with any urgency and trying to win. And when I read that, I was like, he had a broken thumb. Like, doesn't he know this? Because like, I think if the UFC wanted to spin it the other way, they could just as easily come out and say, this guy had a broken thumb and he's going out there and still making it razor close. You know, and so it's like it's a matter of perception. I think you could like spin that aspect of it either way. You could. You could. And But I mean, I guess like, like you said, with uh, Dana White making that point about, hey, I don't think Benson Henderson really did anything uh, in this fight that makes anybody want to see him fight Anthony Pettis for a third time. I mean, that does then throw the whole lightweight division back into a, a sort of a chaos because, okay, you had Thompson where he was going to get the title shot. Then, you know, Pettis is going to be out for a while. So now all he has to do is win this one fight to keep his title shot position. He loses it and then says afterwards that he was probably going to retire anyway. And so he wasn't even going to take the USC up on that title shot offer, which I don't believe for a second, not one goddamn second. Uh, but, Okay, so all Benson Henderson did is knock off a contender without replacing him with somebody. Uh, I mean, for one thing, is that something Benson Henderson should be concerned about? Because we've seen what has happened to other guys who have adopted that role in other weight classes. Looking at you, John Fitch. Uh, especially if you get to be where you're, quote, super fucking expensive. Uh, you know, that might not be a good thing for you. Uh, but also, you know, is this basically just a fight that Gilbert Melendez can sit back and watch and then think, all right, everything, everything's coming up Gil. Uh, I mean, I think if we are to believe the UFC's own doctor's timeline about how long it's going to take Anthony Pettis to return from this, this knee injury, uh, Anthony Pettis is saying, I think July and the UFC doctor is saying that's way too optimistic. Like he actually said the words, I would pray for him, which, uh, (laughs) kind of freaked me out when he said that. Uh, Something about like a, a religious doctor is just kind of unsettling. I don't, I don't want you to be. Hoping we're relying on the power of prayer. I mean, I think that the harsh reality of this fight is that no matter who won, they were probably going to end up having to take another fight before Anthony Pettis was ready to go. Whether that's against TJ Grant uh, returning from his own concussion that has kept him out since last summer, or, uh, you know, maybe in the case of Benson Henderson, I could see a rematch with Gilbert Melendez since their first fight was so razor thin. Although, like I said at the top of the show, there seems like no point in having Benson Henderson even fight anybody anymore because we know what's going to happen. It's going to look just like this, and he'll probably win a super close decision. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you've also got guys like like Habib Namurgamedov, Nurmi. Nurmi. Uh, uh, who's floating around out there trying to look for anyone who will fight him. Uh, and you'd think, like, Ben Henderson would want to take that fight if he's, if he's hot on the trail of another UFC title shot and knowing that the UFC doesn't want to give him one, essentially, uh, you'd think that he would want to beat any of the contenders that, that he could possibly get. Yeah, well, you know, 
I mean, I guess the the thing here is we're depending a lot on uh, when Anthony Pettis can actually, you know, take off one of those silly ass suits and get back in there. Uh, you know, does he have a guy for knees? Because that's maybe that's the guy he <laughs> yeah, could he, he could needs use. A knee guy at this point. Yeah. Yeah, well, hey, but you know, uh, maybe who knows if he, if Anthony Pettis can win a couple more fights, then maybe he can finally get that shot at Nate Diaz. Yeah, he needs to put a couple wins together. Yeah, and he can come yeah. talk to him. You make a case for himself. Hashtag silly ass suits. <laughs> All right, well, let's do. Are you fucking kidding me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are you fucking kidding me for this week? Well, you know, we touched on it. I think last week when somebody sent in a, a listener mail about Dana White making the claim that uh, if Henan Barrow, the monster, if he uh, defeats Uriah Faber again, uh, that then he will be the number one pound for pound fighter in the world. Then, however, uh, Dana White switched it up a little bit and said that if Chris Weidman, uh, can beat Vitor Belfort, he will be the number one pound for pound fighter in the world. Now, I think mostly this just makes the point that the pound for pound shit is stupid and useful mainly as a promotional tool and as just a stupid, stupid argument between people. But are you fucking kidding me? It can't just keep changing the fucking list at your whim every time just so you can promote a fight. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you me? fucking kidding me with this stuff? Just leave it alone. It's a fluid situation with Dana White's pound for pound list. Indeed. Check the solemn vows, people. Check them out. Read them. Take them to heart. Uh, ben... I don't know if you you have heard. I assume you probably have that that uh, scheduled for this coming Sunday. Uh, the the Super Bowl is going to happen in the New York, New Jersey, Newark, East Rutherford, North Bergen area of oh, the country. Yeah, uh, American an, football contest. Yeah, I believe in an, uh, scheduled for an outside venue, as everyone is known for the past what. Uh, two dozen years or however early they schedule these Super Bowl things in advance a year, whatever it is. Uh, well, there's going to be some weather rolling in and I've seen that there's going to be some hand wringing about whether or not they're going to play the Super Bowl on Sunday or in fact, move it to Saturday to have it a day early to try to avoid the weather, which would mean that the UFC would have to move UFC 169 from Saturday night to Sunday night when the UFC is at the Prudential Prudential Center, Center, Newark, New Jersey, beautiful Newark, New Jersey. Would I assume what Saturday afternoon is supposed to be 75 and sunny and then then Sunday is supposed to be a hellscape? Are you fucking kidding me, dude? They ain't moving no Super Bowl to Saturday. That's ridiculous. That's not happening. Are you fucking kidding me? me. It's one of the biggest events of the year in American culture. They're not just moving it. They're not going to see if Bruno Mars can show up a day early. Fuck that shit, dude. (laughs) You're not having it on Saturday. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, at UFC 169 this weekend, possibly Sunday, if they move the Super Bowl, which I know you you think is super likely. Not happening. Uh, we get two title fights uh, in a couple little guy divisions. I mean, you add them all up, and you got you got like one decent size heavyweight. You know, uh, first uh, you got Jose Aldo and Ricardo Lamas going at it for the featherweight strap, uh, and then Hennen Barrow, who's a monster, or so we are told. He's going to do it again, brother, with Uriah Faber for the bantamweight belt. That's right. How pumped are you? 
Uh, little pumped, medium pumped, medium pumped, medium pumped. Yeah. I mean, I, I love these two divisions. I think that that featherweight and bantamweight are among the most exciting divisions in the sport. Uh, and, and you know, I'm I'm typically a huge proponent of of little guy fighting. I think that it's it's the best stuff out there for the true mixed martial arts fighter that just doesn't want to see you know two real big bulls out there throwing hillbilly haymakers and grabbing their shorts and getting tired by the 12th minute. Uh, so in that respect, I think you're going to have a real solid event here. I, d- I don't know if you're going to move a ton of units if you're the UFC in terms of your pay-per-view buy. Uh, and, you know, a little bit hard to get over the disappointment of not being able to see Hennon Barrow fight Dominic Cruz in the unification bout that we thought we were going to get here. The reason that uh, the UFC go has gone away from its typical policy of having the heaviest title defense be the the uh, main event of the show. Here, obviously, they put the Bantamweight title on top of the Featherweight title because it was going to be such a big deal to have Burrell fight uh, Cruz, but Cruz pulled out with a torn groin, uh, and so Uriah Faber steps in on short notice. So to me, uh, a little bit of a disappointment there because I really wanted to see the Burrell-Cruz fight, but still, I think this one is going to be pretty fun, if nothing else. You mean the Burrell Faber fight, or the the card in general? Yeah, well, I mean both of the both of the, the the title fights at the at the top of the card, and then you know your flyweight and lightweight fights at the at the bottom of the of the main card. You know, probably probably going to be an action packed night if nothing else. Well, for me, I guess I just I'm not expecting a whole lot out of Burrell Faber because I think you're just going to see five more rounds of the same thing you saw in the last one. Yeah, that's a possibility. Uh, and you know, Faber's game, he's going to go out there and and give it the best he can and, but uh, I don't know, I just don't see him having anything new to threaten Henan Burrell with. I think it could just end up being exactly like the last one, which was an okay fight, wasn't exactly spectacular. Uh I am actually a little more interested in seeing Jose Aldo uh and Ricardo Lamas I mean, for one thing, Aldo is a huge heavy favorite here, uh, maybe a little overvalued uh, against Ricardo Lama. So I think it's tougher than, than maybe people are giving him credit for. Uh, but that's one where I, I am interested to see if Aldo is just going to come in there and steamroll the guy or if he might have a little bit more trouble than a lot of people are thinking. I mean, that one, at least to me, feels like something fresh, like we might actually learn something new. Whereas I don't think I can say that about Brown favor. Yeah, um, and you're right. Lamas is a tough dude. He's he, he's coming to the UFC and ripped off uh, four wins in a row over increasingly difficult competition. You know, he beat Eric Koch in his last fight, and before that, beat Hatsu Hayoki, who was uh, pretty highly regarded. Uh, you know, but when he, when he was in at the top of his game, uh, the problem I think with Lamas, and this is why I think that the UFC better hope that that. Jose Aldo holds serve here and that things play out according to chalk is that, uh, I believe when I wrote a story about this a couple of months ago, uh, Lamas had only ever been on UFC TV twice before. Like maybe his, his first two fights were both undercard fights. And then, uh, you know, his last two UFC on FX and one UFC on Fox performance, I think were his only two televised, uh, bouts. And you know, you can't say the guy's not deserving of a title shot when you look at his record at the same time. I don't think anybody knows who this guy is and it might be uh, a public relations marketability kind of nightmare for the UFC if you come out of UFC 169 with featherweight champ Ricardo Lamas. I don't I mean I think they they don't know him now and I think that's one of the reasons it was tough for him to make that case for a title shot but I think that it would not be so bad if if Lamas wins that fight. I mean I, you talk to Lamas and he's a really likable guy uh and you know can 
can definitely sit there and once people like get to actually hear the shit from his mouth, I think that people are, are likely to become a fan of that guy, especially if you can go out there and beat Aldo. I mean, I think then you're looking at probably uh, a rematch situation, depending on exactly how it goes. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that a lot worse things could happen for you. I mean, I think the problem is right now is selling that fight right. when people don't know him. Right. I think if, you know, the guy goes out there and, and, and finishes Jose Aldo, uh, you know, that's a, you know, an instant boost. Then people know who the, who he is, or then people are at least curious to find out who the hell he is. Uh, I think that, you know, your big problem is selling it the night before the Super Bowl that right. he's wor- he's somebody you should stay home for. Yeah. And you know, the thing, these things that I say have, are, it's nothing against Ricardo Lamas. I think you're right about him in, in both a, a personal and per- professional setting. He, the guy's a, a pretty likable and, and a, obviously a really, really talented fighter. Uh, the only thing I'm saying is like, you're supposed to get to that point before you're in title fight. You're supposed to get into the, get to the point where people want to see you and know who you are. And you are a marketable personality before you are fighting uh, Jose Aldo, the only featherweight champion the UFC has ever seen, and a guy who was just unbelievably dominant, you know, as WEC champion before he even came into the octagon. Uh, in order to sell that, you want the, the the opponent to be a guy that people have have heard of. You know, I I kind of wonder about this one too, though. That uh, it feels like past the you know the UFC likes to do this card Super Bowl weekend, right? And it feels like before, at least just in my kind of casual reckoning of it. It, it, they seemed like they used to be bigger, right? Like it used to be like some George St. Pierre, Chuck Liddell shit. I, I get like you're, you're kind of hampered by injuries here. I mean, do you think that this is a good time to be trying to do a big pay-per-view? I mean, should they be trying to pull out a little more stops? Cause it seems like they've hit on a few key dates in the year that you can rely on. Like, you know, trying one close to New Year's that they try and close out the year with a big bang, you know, maybe Memorial Day weekend, 4th of July weekend, that kind of stuff. Uh, and, trying to target the the Super Bowl weekend because it just feels like a big weekend in American sports. It also feels like a weekend when it's really tough for you to get any, you know, media attention beyond just the like the dedicated MMA sites and blogs and stuff because everybody's just thinking about the Super Bowl for like two goddamn weeks before that. Yeah, and I mean, we talked about this earlier in the show, but I think in years past, you had a situation where it was just like all pay-per-views seemed like a bigger deal because there were just fewer shows. They had, you know, they they had uh, fewer cards with which to to put all of their marketable guys on. Now everyone's spread out. Everything's diluted. You got 56,000 shows a year. Uh, you know, if, if we That's were, a lot of shows. if we were still doing 28 shows a year, uh, then, then you'd probably have an easier time stacking every single pay-per-view card. Uh, but, but, you know, if you're not gonna, maybe you're right. Maybe if you're not gonna get, uh, a ton of press and publicity, uh, leading up to, uh, this pay-per-view, even though as we record this, it seems like, uh, Dana White is having a, uh, a, a debate with sports writer TJ Simers at the, at the pre-fight luncheon. So I don't know. Maybe they'll get a bounce out of that. You never know. But maybe you're right. Maybe this is one you shouldn't expect a huge buy rate from. I, I, I don't know. I mean, as you said, traditionally in the, in the past, this has been one of the UFC's marquee events of the year. Doesn't necessarily feel like that this year. Uh, but I still think, yeah, you're probably going to have a good show that, that, uh, most hardcore fans are, are going to tune in for. Well, yeah, and you got to also 
kind of well-placed, I guess, in New Jersey, just a few minutes away from where the, the Super Bowl is taking place, I believe, on some kind of floating iceberg uh, from, from what I've been hearing in the media. Uh, and so what? I guess the appeal is like, hey, rich assholes who came to town for the Super Bowl, what are you doing the night before? Oh, you're, you're, you're going out and getting irresponsibly drunk? We'll do that here. Do it at the Prudential Center. We got you, son. You can we got yell, you covered. You can yell at people to kick each other in the balls or something since you, since you don't actually follow this sport. <laughs> uh, let me ask you this. Do you feel like it is unfair to think that Jose Aldo has uh, underperformed a little bit as UFC champion? I don't know if it's unfair. I think that the thing with Jose Aldo is that there's this sense that he is capable of a a kind of greatness that he just hasn't got to yet either because he hasn't been pushed by the right people uh, or just hasn't been able to stay healthy for a sustained period of time to really make his case there. I, I think that we all think Jose Aldo is great. He does some things here and there that confirm it, but we think that there's more there. I, I think that that's one of those things. And, you know, stuff like, like the last fight with uh, the Korean zombie is a little disappointing the way it ended. Uh, you know, the, with that, the kind of freak shoulder injury kind of thing. Uh, I mean, I think that right now, if you were to ask me what's the, the fight that's really going to tell us the most about Jose Aldo, I would not say it's this one. I would say it'd be a rematch with Chad Mendez. Uh, but, you know, hey, I, I don't, like, you look at the guy's record and how, what can you really criticize him for, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's why it feels a little bit unfair to me. Yet at the same time, like when when he was coming out of the WEC uh, back in 2010, 2011, he had so dominated everyone and and done a couple of such amazing things uh, like the double flying knee KO of Cub Swanson in seven seconds. Yeah. You want to piss at, Cub Swanson off? Just UFC, go ahead and bring that up. I'm right sure now. back at UFC 41. But it was like, you know, Jose Aldo was doing stuff where you had to watch it again in slow motion to make sure that you saw what you think you just saw you know what i mean and like he seemed like the kind of guy that you thought could be like a revelatory crossover star in this sport because of how thoroughly he had dominated everyone in the wec and i think that you're right because of injuries and maybe because of increased competition he hasn't been able to go out and, and have many highlights uh in the ufc i, I feel like it, it's it's a case where maybe he has underperformed a little bit but only because uh maybe i personally thought the bar was going to be so high for him coming out of the wec well yeah and i mean some of that is quality of competition issues i think it's got a little better uh but i mean like this one this is, seems like a tough fight for him like he's like a six to one favorite over ricardo lamas so you kind of got to go out there and smash him if you have another one where it looks like you, you you know you get up on the scorecards early and then maybe coast like that's been maybe the one knock you can really like uh, use against Jose Aldo is that sometimes down the stretch his cardio doesn't always seem that great to the point where it almost seemed like uh, Chan Sung Jung was relying on that like okay maybe the guy will just kind of get tired on his own uh, when in fact you might actually have to tire him out yourself uh, in order to, to get to that point but it seems like you know th like that's the one thing we're, we're waiting to see is if you know if he goes out there and absolutely smashes Ricardo Lamas then you know good he's he, that that plays into the the whole Jose Aldo story thing uh if he goes out there and wins a decision over the guy then maybe people start to think uh he, he probably not the superstar we were hoping he'd be yeah this would be a good time for a double jumping knee KO if you're Jose Aldo and you want to 
uh, start the momentum up a little bit again. Ben, let's do uh, tips for the well-rounded fight fan, and then we will move on to our final round of the day. Uh, what's your tip for the well-rounded fight fan this week, Ben? Well, my tip is a documentary film uh, by Werner Herzog, who is one of my favorite documentary filmmakers. Uh, it's called Happy People, and it is about a bunch of uh, Siberian fur trappers off in the, the frozen uh, taiga wilderness in Russia, uh, and shit is just fascinating and awesome. Uh, basically, just like, you know, I mean, it does do the thing a little bit where it idealizes a simplistic lifestyle, uh, but it is also just pretty awesome to follow around a Russian fur trapper. Uh, and, uh, I mean, what else do you want? The dude's out there with, like, homemade wooden traps trapping sable in the winter. I mean, that's just good times, man. It does. It sounds like a real ride on the wild side. Yeah. It's also on Netflix streaming, so uh, you can just cue that thing right up. Excellent. Uh, this week, my tip for the well-rounded fight fan is the novel Galveston by uh, Nick Pizzolatto. Uh, it came out a couple years ago, but uh, you may have heard of the television series True Detective, which is on uh, HBO right now, starring Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. I've not seen the show yet, but it's it's garnered some good reviews, and people that I trust to say things about TV say it's awesome. Uh, and uh, it got me thinking about Nick Pizzolatto's novel Galveston, because Nick Pizzolatto is the creator of True Detective on HBO. Uh, Galveston is, a, is an excellent uh, crime novel for any of you out there that... Where that's in your wheelhouse, you might want to check it out. Uh, I'm looking at it right now on Amazon, and it's available on your Kindle for $2.99. What? So if that sounds like the kind of thing you're into, we'll have a link up on comainevent.com tomorrow. That uh, is some bullshit. I read that back when you recommended it to me months ago and paid the full price for it. Well, what the there you hell? Go. $2.99 now. God damn it. Anyway, Galveston by Nick Pizzolatto. We'll put, put up a link for that for you. Uh, as for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number three. to go back to December 2011 to find any green on the respective Wikipedia pages of Alistair Overeem and Frank Mir. Uh, that was when Alistair Overeem defeated Brock Lesnar back at UFC 141, and at the event just prior to that at UFC 140, Frank Mir beat Antonio Rodrigo Nogueira. Uh, since then, it's been a tough road for both of them. Overeem's lost back-to-back -back fights to uh, Antonio Bigfoot Silva and Travis Brown. And Frank Mir has actually lost three in a row to Junior Dos Santos, Daniel Cormier, and Josh Barnett. Uh, one of these dudes is leaving without a job? Is that is that too harsh to say? Or is that the, the grim reality of what we're looking at here at the, uh, the heavyweight fight on the UFC 169 main card? Kind of seems like it ought to be. Don't you think? They're both in that situation where, oh, hey, man, we thought that you were really going to pull it together and do something, and then maybe you didn't. And they're also also both in that situation of, we don't exactly know what your hormone situation is these days, do we? Because Frank Mir has been on the TRT, but the, the legally sanctioned TRT, the kind he actually had permission to use, whereas Alistair Overeem got popped for it when he was apparently uh, injected without his knowledge. 
I think yeah. that was his yes, story. His doctor went ahead and shot him up with that without letting him know first, as the uh, doctors of famous professional athletes so often do. Yeah. Don't you hate when that happens? them with stuff without their knowledge, not, yeah. without telling them what it is. You go to the doctor to get a flu shot. Next thing you know, you've gained 20 pounds of muscle and are just ripped. Yeah. I hate that. Well, when that's happening, I don't want to know what's in the shot. I'm just like, <laughs> give me another one. Give me another one. Yeah, you you and uh, the Reem might have something in common then. It is, I think, the perhaps the most pertinent question of this fight, though, is for us to figure out which Overeem is going to show up. Uh, are we going to see the uh, unbelievably yoked He-Man action figure who came in and beat up Brock Lesnar and who had beat up a litany of dudes in a row right before that? Or are we going to see the somewhat softer, somewhat less aggressive Overeem that we saw in his last two appearances against Bigfoot and against Travis Brown, especially now I noticed this past week I saw some reports that uh, Overeem had moved his training camp for this fight away from the Black Zillions in Florida and had done much of his prep in Thailand, uh, which I think makes you raise your eyebrows a little bit, although... Whatever Alistair Overeem does is going to make you raise your eyebrows at this point since, you know, up until the, the breakout success of Vitor Belfort, he had been the poster boy for the guy we all suspected of doing a little extracurricular activity right. uh, in well, order to build up his, his resume. I don't, people are using that as a, a sign that, that he might be on some juice again. I don't know about that because, for one thing, uh, I don't know if you follow the pro sports performance enhancing drug sagas in, in other sports. Uh, it sounds like Florida's probably a pretty good place to, to get a hold of some of that stuff. They, they seem, seem to keep popping up in the news with the various anti-aging clinics and stuff like that. As you mentioned, uh, you know, Belfort uh, lives and trains in Florida, so it's not as if you can't, can't get a hold of the stuff down there if you want it. It's also not as if... Uh, we have a serious drug testing regimen in this sport where you have to worry about the athletic commission, uh, you know, asking him for a random sample, which is how he, the only way he got caught in the first place, uh, when Nevada did that, when he had gone there to, to appear for one of the promotional events, you know, months beforehand. Uh, and from what everybody said when he was like at the black zillions, he wasn't really at there. Like he wasn't really a team member. I mean, there were stories about them, you know, pulling up a curtain around, uh, his part of the gym. Like basically this is my space and that's your space over there. Wow. Uh, yeah. Well, and you look around at the other guys in that camp, like there, there's not a ton of like heavyweights there. And that's always the thing that heavyweights talk about is the difficulty in finding other heavyweight sparring partners. So it never really sounded like he was too much of a team member to begin with. So I, I don't know if I'd read too much into him going to Thailand. I do think it's going to be one of those situations though, where when Overeem gets on the scale, everybody's going to be getting their cell phones out, getting ready to take a picture of him, getting ready to, to tweet out their thoughts on his physique. Cause it's, that's now the thing It's like, how cut does Overeem look? That'll tell us whether he's on the juice or not. Just getting their side-by-side Photoshop comparisons right. ready to roll off the off the assembly line. Now, see, the only thing I would say about training in Thailand is that the UFC obviously keeps telling us that they're that they're testing the shit out of all these guys who have a history of, of either being on TRT or, or, in Overeem's case, having elevated levels of testosterone. I would think he would be one of the guys that you would want to test the shit out of if he was doing his training camp over in Thailand. Uh, how are we monitoring that? Is did we set uh, Mark Ratner up with a with a hotel room in Bangkok uh, so he could keep tabs on Overeem, or or what are we doing there? You know, well, who are we keeping tabs on? Like, when is that happening? Everybody, we're testing the shit out of everybody here, mm-hmm. man. I don't know if you've heard the heard the the company line. Everybody's getting tested. Nobody's cheating. Everybody's on the level. 
Yeah. No pun intended. Well, you know, it's one of those things too where, okay, hey, if you, like, conceivably you could just call them up, right? If you want to, and, and do the thing where like, hey, here's a testing facility near you, get there, or we have a guy being sent from that testing facility to, to take samples or something the way, you know, the, the Olympics does it where they got people all over the damn place and they still manage to, to test those guys. So like that stuff can be done. I guess the thing is, and this is also the thing that's always seemed odd to me about the UFC's claim that, hey, they can do their own testing there and it's fine, is that, like, what do you do if you tell a guy, like, hey, we want to do a, a random test of you in the next 24 hours, and he doesn't do it? If he's like, oh, hey, man, my car broke down, or like, oh, my, you know, I had a big fight with my lady, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, so, but I'll get to it, man, I'll get to, I'll, what, how about Tuesday? Can I, get, can I do it Tuesday? Like, what do you do in those situations? Because... You know, in the really strictest sense, they consider that like a failure, basically, if you don't do it. But like when the Nevada Commission was trying to to test Overeem before they caught him, right before the the Brock Lesnar fight, and uh, he was out of the country, he wasn't around, and and didn't really, you know. And then he did a he went and did some kind of test, but it wasn't the right kind of test. And they decided, you know, kind of did a little naughty naughty Alistair, shook their finger at him, but then gave him a conditional license, right, and let him fight. Uh, and it's kind of like those are your choices. Like either pull it because he didn't do exactly what you asked him to do, or you basically admit that you're not really willing to stand behind your your own threats and, and claims, which I think would be the way more likely scenario. All right. Well, lest we get a ton more emails condemning us for spending more time on this show talking about the single biggest problem in the sport that we cover professionally. Let's actually yeah, let's talk, talk about some dude pooping his pants. Let's, <laughs> Fuck we you. already talked about that last week. You know how I feel. We're not doing that. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the little, the actual fight here. Uh, the, the, this I assume is, is one for the bros. Uh, you're going to have a couple heavyweights <laughs> out there. Just uh, Looking bang, slow throwing heavy leather, probably in the, in the, at least in the, uh, the case of Alistair Overeem, who knows what Frank Mir will try to do. Uh, who has more left in the tank here? If I've, if I've got 20 bucks, uh, then I need to turn into 40 bucks. Uh, what's my play? <laughs> uh, I mean, I think like if you're, if you're going to sit there and ask me like, Hey, if I had to put th- throw some some money down on this one, I'm still throwing it down on Overeem. I mean, I might want to change my mind when I see him on the scales, or or I might want to wait until I see him on the scales at first uh, before. Like if he does the whole like fat kid going swimming thing and tries to weigh in in a t-shirt, no, holy on, shit! Holy that's, shit! I would be surprised. <laughs> I don't even know if Overeem owns a t-shirt. <laughs> Splitting his time between Florida and Thailand, he's just on the beach, man. Yeah, just taking pictures. That could be. But you know what? I like. Frank Muir, he he can. Uh, I think his best chance in a fight like this is to kind of get in close, wear you down, and and make it into you know just kind of a a clinch heavy fight. Maybe somewhat like he did against Daniel Cormier, but you know better. Uh, and this time he'll have a an opponent who's not quite so quick, but who is probably much larger in order to contend with. I think any time spent standing at a distance with Overeem or, you know, in a clinch that is not like one he initiates and under his terms, those are problem areas for him. Like, I, I don't know if I see Frank Muir submitting a guy like Overeem off his back or something. So I'm just not sure what Frank Muir does to win this. 
Yeah, we'll see. In, in a lot of ways, it's a pretty good uh, uh, indicator fight for Alistair over him just because, you know, it, the last, at least we have to go so far back to when he was getting wins. But, you know, Frank Mir still was taking care of guys like Roy Nelson and, and kind of an aging Crow Cop and aging Nogueira. The last three guys that he's lost to, Junior Dos Santos, Daniel Cormier, and then uh, Josh Barnett, who was on a little bit of a resurgence there before he lost to Travis Brown. Uh, at least Frank Mir was still beating sort of middle of the pack guys, uh, at least the last time he was winning fights the guys that he has lost to in recent years have have been upper echelon heavyweight guys so uh you know if Overeem is able to beat him maybe he can make a case that he still belongs in that in that top class of heavyweights whereas if he loses uh not only might he be looking for a job uh he also probably fades a little bit more into the into the the scenery uh even more than he already has after his two back-to-back losses yeah and i think that like when you mention you know some of frank Mir's recent ups and downs i mean yeah that, we're talking about 2010 2000 you got to go back yeah. ways to find that but well and I, I don't think even when he's at his best i don't think he's done well against the bigger heavyweights you know like uh he had that one submission of brock lesnar before lesnar knew a goddamn thing about mma uh but then you know remember when he felt like he needed to bulk up in order to compete with some of those dudes and it, that didn't go super well for him either i mean you know guys like shane carwin knocking him out uh, Junior Dos Santos just boxing circles around him, uh, and then Barnett just basically roughnecking him, getting there and roughnecking him in, in the clinch and kneeing him in the head. Uh, so, I mean, I think that when he when he's at his best is when he can take on some of those smaller guys where he can use his size a little bit and force them into a little bit more desperation mode. I don't know that I see him doing that against Overeem. Yeah, me either. Unless, uh, uh, like, 2005 Overeem shows up. Like back in the pride days where he's basically just like a like a, a big skinny dude a with a, yeah uh tall skinny dude with that uh that kind of kid and play style hair kind of going for him yeah if 2005 Overeem shows up and fights 2004 frank mir we could have some shit on our hands <laughs> we could be in for some stuff uh all right well let's do uh just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week uh ben this week i'm just gonna read you the statement that dropped earlier today from the Association of Ringside Physicians on one of your favorite topics, the therapeutic use exemption for testosterone replacement therapy. It reads as follows. The incident, uh, incidence of hypogonadism requiring the use of testosterone replacement therapy in professional athletes is extraordinarily rare. Huh. Accordingly, the use of an anabolic steroid such as testosterone in a professional boxer or mixed martial artist is rarely justified. Steroid use of any kind, including unmerited testosterone, significantly, significantly increases the safety and health risk to combat sports athletes and their opponents. TRT in a combat sports athlete may also create an unfair advantage contradictory to the integrity of sport. Consequently, the Association of Ringside Physicians supports the general elimination of testosterone use exemptions for testosterone replacement therapy. Signed, Association of Ringside Physicians. Well, what would they know? They're just an organization of doctors. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad, I'm just saying this week... I don't know if you heard, but Roy Big Country Nelson has supposedly applied for the vacant position of executive director of the Nevada State Athletic Commission. Speaking of doctors. <laughs> now that Keith Kaiser is is moving on with his life. Uh, I, I read about this on Bloody Elbow, who also posted a link to the, the PDF of the application. 
Uh, and so as long as we're reading stuff, I would like to read the section from the application that says to qualify. The ideal candidate will possess a bachelor's degree in business or public administration or a related field and a minimum of five years of increasingly responsible professional level experience, which included responsibility for the coordination and management of multiple work units in a complex organization or an equivalent combination of education and experience. I'm just saying, does that sound like you, Roy Nelson? Does it? Wow, just saying. Although, come on, wouldn't it be in like let's just burn our entire society to the ground kind of way. Sort of awesome if Roy Nelson were the executive director of the Nevada Commission. Oh, it would be the greatest thing of all time. I would have uh, complete faith in his ability to navigate the backwaters of Nevada state politics. Also, I wish, like, maybe if somebody could just like convincingly pull off that prank on Dana White to like tell him that Roy Nelson has been hired. <laughs> uh, although maybe not a good idea because it might kill him on the spot. <laughs> His heart would just explode inside his chest. Well, that is going to do it for this week's episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. We will be back next week to break down all of the crazy stuff that I'm sure is going to happen at UFC 169. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You think that, uh, I mean, obviously neither one of us has a bachelor's degree in business or public administration, but we do have master's degrees in fine arts. That kind of qualifies us, right? Oh, I've already put my application in. Yeah, 97 grand a year, man. And maybe, no kidding, I've made it clear that I would use my position as Nevada State Athletic Commission Chairman mostly to mitigate and finish out this program.